Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Literacy View. We have a really exciting show for you tonight. We have a special guest. His name is Nick Covington. And Nick is the creative director of the Human Restoration Project. And he recently wrote an article that caught our eye. And the title is Unsettling the Science of Reading, Who is Being Sold a Story? And um, Nick is, uh, he, he has experience as a social studies teacher for 10 years. He was a teacher, high school teacher in the Iowa schools. And um, that's interesting, Nick, because I'm going to read something. But, you know, your article seemed to have been focused on learning to read, but your uh, teaching experience is in high school and older kids in general. So I am going to pull something out, but I do want to bring it back to um, how you came to writing this, okay? So you wrote, my goal with this piece is to capture the questions and criticisms that I have not just about, excuse me, that I have not just about the narrative of Soul to Story, but of the broader movement toward the science of reading and bring in other evidence and perspectives that inform my own. I hope to make the case that the science of reading is not a useful label to describe the multiple goals of literacy, that investment in teacher professionalization is inoculation against being sold a story, and that the unproductive and, and divisive reading wars actually make it more difficult for us to think about how to cultivate literate kids. So that was a mouthful right there. Um, and so you brought in Soul to Story, um, which is the Emily Hanford podcast. And you um, seem to say that you thought that it was divisive in some ways, um, or at least the message that comes across might be. And I'm interested to hear your perspective on what I just read. And also, if you can tie it in with your own experiences, since you did teach social studies high school. And right now in the work that you do, you work with middle school and high school age, um, you know, districts. So if I could um, turn it over to you, Nick. Yeah, so. Um, as you read, uh, it's a little bit of a mouthful. I apologize, but just trying to get my my thesis all in in the first paragraph there. Um, yeah, I I have uh, avoided touching on anything involving reading and instruction, and everything else, uh, because frankly, I felt not that it was not my position. I didn't feel really qualified to do that. Um, and once I started to actually dive into it, um, sold the story was actually the last line of uh, of my reading and my research into this area. And the more that I read, uh, kind of the more that it actually unsettled for me, hence the the title of it, what this uh, what soul the story was actually about. Um, and so, yeah, I just wanted to represent to the best of my ability um, the uh, the sources that I had read, um, the perspectives that I had on this and how I saw it fitting into uh, the broader case um, for literacy um, K-12 and beyond. OK, so. Um... Judy, you and I both read this. And, um, you know, I think that Nick has some very interesting ideas in here. Some I agree with and some I strongly disagree with. Um, and I'm interested to hear how you felt after reading this article. Um, since you were a reading recovery teacher, and Nick mentioned reading recovery in this article. And you have said that there were many positive things about it, yet now you feel very strongly that um, there are better ways to teach kids new readers and kids struggling in reading. So let's hear from you for a bit. So some context. It was Friday afternoon, and as always, Faith and I are looking for breaking news in literacy. And we saw two articles come out at the same time, and one of them was Nick's. And I was intrigued. The first thing that intrigued me 
was it was about literacy. It mentioned Solda's story. The second thing that I found really interesting was that it was posted by Reading Recovery. Now, I thought it was well-written. I thought um, Nick hit on many interesting points. I was happy to hear Nick talk about things that I think might be a little controversial right now, like, you know, saying, you know what, we could be sold a story again because, you know, we are all using in New York City where I work research-based curriculum, quote-unquote evidence-based. But like, you know, Faith, I've been telling you for a long time, not everything in that box is going to be a perfect science, right? I don't know if every task aligns with the research. However, I do strongly strongly, strongly, strongly believe after working in New York City schools now for 26 years, many, many years without a curriculum, the system failed. I saw years and years of terrible data in New York City, particularly, and I know all around the country because I actually live in Greenwich, work with students in Greenwich, Connecticut, work in New York City, speak to parents all over. Our system has been failing the kids, okay? And I worked in many schools that had zero curriculum. I was reading recovery. Then there was like sprinkles of Lucy in some schools. And then there was some schools that had zero curriculum. And I work in many schools that have really poor kids and really frustrated me for a really long time that these kids weren't getting a research and evidence-based chance at success. Now, in Greenwich, Connecticut, where I live, a lot of these kids weren't either at some point. But they had me after school, right? I was tutoring three kids, four kids, five kids. But week. not all of Greenwich. They all don't have you. So let's right. go back to Nick. All right. So you just right. heard from Jim. Oh, wait, one thing. Wait, 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 wait. Let me just. Okay. Let me okay. So you, she mentioned working in New York City. She was a reading recovery teacher. And she um, feels that after seeing um you know, how kids are struggling, that there is a better way. Your thoughts, Nick, and then I want to comment about reading recovery as well. Go and then ahead. I want to go back to mentioning the okay. word decoding. Okay, let's let's hear from Nick. Okay, yeah. let's do it. So so for context, right? So um, if, if people haven't read the piece, they can just go to humanrestorationproject.org. They can go to We're our writing page it. or, yes, or yep, post it, yes. So so for some context there, the way that I mentioned reading recovery actually came to me um, from uh, Tim Shanahan. So, you know, he is somebody that I had actually heard uh, in literacy spheres, you know, well beyond. So to find, you know, his work now as I was approaching this piece, I thought was really interesting. And um, the only time that I really mentioned reading recovery is through his lens to say, you know, there's a lot about the the learning and the mind and memory that we actually don't know um, to have some humility around that. And he says that reading recovery, um, I guess I can just quote from him indirectly. Uh, he says, somehow students who are being taught in this way are still ending up reading much as the kids who receive explicit decoding instruction. The same could be said of approaches to reading that only teach words. As already noted, such approaches like reading recovery do not do as well as explicit decoding instruction in improving reading. Yet, how do students learn from from them at all. According to basic research studies, they should not work. That they do should be a matter of more than intellectual curiosity. So Nick, I'm going to jump in. Oh, so yes. I read the article and I saw what Tim said, but right. um, there was a study that came out in 2023 that talked about that over um, years, right, that these kids, when they move into third grade and fourth grade, not only do they lose what was taught, but they actually are those kids who have regressed more. They are harder to teach. And I could vouch for that. I have had those reading recovery kids, my like my whole career in tutoring, working with kids where reading recovery did not work for them and their parents were calling me after they hit second grade, third grade, fourth grade. So there are, you know, I respect Tim's work, but there are studies that show that it, it over the long haul that it did lose ground. Also, I just want to mention the studies. Um, there were only three out of 202 studies that met the standards of high quality evidence for reading recovery. And they were small scale studies, only 105 participants. 
And none of those until 2023 really had data that tracked the long-term impacts. So I know, Judy, you're like, but you, you can't wait to say something. So jump in. You said I'm interrupting, so I'm sitting. I'm drinking seltzer. <laughs> oh, I didn't know drinks were involved. I just got tea I in had, my cup oh, Well, you know what? Every, every time Lucy Calkins is met, mentioned, we usually drink to Lucy. And, you know, <laughs> you mentioned her before. <laughs> did Nick mention her in the article? Uh, no. Isn't that a miracle? <laughs> Yeah. Well, I think for some context, I mean, I'm I'm not taking a side that uh, says I'm pro reading recovery, anti reading recovery, or whatever. I know in that. There. That's how I took so, it. That's yeah, how I so, took so, it. Nick. So yeah, that's I, I if, think, if you're if you're yeah. expecting me to mount a defense of reading recovery, I'm not uh, no, <laughs> not uh, that no, person. So we're having a conversation, and yeah. actually, I think what really did come across to both of us, Judy. I hope I can speak for you. I, I think that why not? I'm gonna drink some more seltzer. Yeah, it was well written, very well Thank you. Written. very well written. And Thank um, you. even like I said, even though I don't agree with you on a lot of points, I I I thought that you did come up with some very good points that I, I'd like to highlight as well. Um, Judy, did you have anything else you wanted to say about reading recovery before we move on? I don't think I wanted to say a lot about reading recovery, but I think part of why I am good at what I do and have great results is because, you know, I don't just follow. I never just followed reading recovery. I knew that a lot of the kids that I work with didn't do as well as they should have. 40% of kids will probably, what is, I think the data says that like 40% of kids in the classroom will do well, no matter what. But then there's 60% of kids that really, really will do better with explicit instruction. And I think the proof is in the pudding for me because, you know, I saw a lot of kids didn't learn how to decode well with me when I was a reading recovery teacher because I wasn't given the skills and the training to know how to teach kids how to decode well. So I, so my flaw as an educator was that, you know, I was getting kids ready for the first letter, maybe talking a little bit about silent E, but there was no scope and sequence to follow. I wasn't teaching kids how to make the sounds well enough. We were told not to tell kids to sound things out where we know now the research says sounding it out is very beneficial for many kids. But at the same token, I do go back to many things that I did learn in reading recovery. Like after we were very well trained in like what Tim Rosinski always speaks about phrasing and fluency. So after a kid reads a sentence with me, even in the early straight stages with a decodable, they sound choppy. I don't really want them to sound choppy. I still go back to what I used to do, which is, okay, let's read it to get together. Or let's read it chorally. Or okay, let's echo so, read that sentence. There was right, nothing so, wrong with that. So, Nick, um, again, you're not saying you defend reading recovery, and that's not your thing. So let's move on. You also mentioned in the article that, um, you know, England was um, using and still uses synthetic phonics. And you said that the data um, is, you know, is not very good in terms of what it was showing uh, where they where they went into a more phonics approach. However, I want to bring something up to you. You were talking about um, the PISA, the PISA results, right? right? But in May of 2023, the PEARLS study, um, Progress International Reading Literacy Study, the PEARLS, uh, you know, England came out with a press release and they were fourth internationally. So they were fourth out of 43 countries, Nick. And, um, you know, I, I'm really not understanding how they could come out fourth, where they've been doing synthetic phonics for years. It was like the national requirement to use synthetic phonics. Um, their results were moving up from 2011 to 2016. And they, um, through the pandemic, they did not lose any ground where other countries did. So could you speak to that? Yeah. So again, for, for context, for listeners, viewers, or whatever. So 
what I found, and I mean, when, when I read it, I thought it was a pretty shocking uh, study, was this big meta-analysis that they did of PISA studies um, comparing the system of phonics in England to um, other uh, systems around it. And this study came out in 2021. So yes, uh, the Pearl study from 2023, not something that uh, that I looked at there. And what that study found that I quoted in the piece, you know, this wasn't research that, that I did uh, on my own, but the uh, the study that I quoted in the piece actually said that they found that England had been less successful. This was in 2021, obviously, since the introduction of more emphasis on synthetic phonics. Um, and the thing that I found compelling, though, was this idea that um, perhaps this emphasis on phonics had actually gone overboard in the sense that it had encroached um, in earlier and later um, years where then it starts to overtake other literacy skills like building background knowledge uh, that become important as as kids get older. Um, and I thought that was uh, an interesting part of the piece to say that, you know, in the context of literacy, which is eventually where this where's the, where this thing moves, we have to think of uh, early reading and whatever we want to call the the science of reading, um, in the context of actually how it helps make uh, literate kids. Um, and I think there can be, uh, and I cited again in the in the piece a lot of uh, instances where I think an oversimplification or perhaps an overzealousness around certain parts of a science of reading um, actually end up getting in the way of um, other, uh, parts that might help, um, build literacy in the future too. So, um, yeah, that, that, that piece was just kind of jarring to me because it was a, a systemic, um, level and, and to get a little bit further into that, um, because in my own piece, I used it just as a bridge to kind of build into some solutions, the things that they recommend and the way that the policy, or I guess the way that educators in England felt with these changes was really that they had been um, steamrolled by Ofsted, you know, and you can read horror stories about the uh, uh, the Office of Education over there in England uh, and the evaluation system and everything else. But, you know, they said that, you know, classroom teachers using their professional judgment um, to ensure the coherence of teaching phonics and reading with other relevant teaching is most likely to be effective. I feel like that just kind of um, makes sense based on uh, the data, makes kind of intuitive sense to me uh, as a secondary educator. And then they say that these scripted lessons, the insistence on um, these inflexible approaches are unlikely to be optimal and that well-trained assistants working in collaboration with their teachers could be a very important contribution. So to me, they saw it from a holistic lens um, rather than just this small change in um, teaching synthetic phonics as a pedagogical approach as opposed to other approaches to reading and looking at how all those wraparound things that we do with schools actually help build um, build literacy. So just for people listening, synthetic phonics, um, it, it is just what the name implies to synthesize. It goes from sounds to the whole word, right? So say the sounds and read the word and it's a print um you know to speech methodology it starts with print all right and they learn the letters and what the sounds are that go with those letters and then they put them together to sound out to read the word that is synthetic phonics um and that's what they use in england and i just want to talk about the importance of understanding how it is supposed to be um, the primary way for kids to learn how to read. So I want to just specify that this is for young children. And if it's done well, the idea is get in, get out, move on. It, it's not supposed to be phonics in fourth grade, fifth grade, sixth grade, high school. If it's done well, it's supposed to be something that is short term, hence the phonics check to make sure that kids are in fact able to sound out words. And they use a nonsense word assessment because this way you could really see if they can apply their decoding. And we know that multisyllable words are made up often of syllables that are nonsense syllables. So if they can do that in isolation, then hopefully they would be able to read bigger words. Judy, your thoughts, I obviously, you can't speak to synthetic phonics, but just the importance of a phonics approach in K-2 um, and how even though we know about all the components, as Nick said, we can't just um, talk about phonics in isolation. 
The science of reading is about all the components. And that's what science of reading advocates have been saying all along. What are your thoughts, Judy? I think Nick is I'll be honest with you, Nick. It's something we've been talking about episode after episode. I think about what does that literacy block look like? And it's not just the 30 minutes of phonics. It's not just the 10 minutes of potentially Hegarty or phonemic awareness instruction. What does that entire literacy block look like? And, you know, skills taught in isolation also don't mean that it's going to transfer into decodable text or into authentic text. That takes a lot of work. So, you know, even after this podcast tonight, I owe my principal an email. I texted him an email and then I'm going to send him an email you know, proposing certain things in the literacy block because research also says the application piece of putting things to work is so critical. You know, you could see something in phonics but have no idea that that's actually happening in a real book, and that's critical. Now, I also think Nick is spot on with knowledge building. And a lot of these curriculums, you know, some schools chose HMH, some schools chose Wit and Wisdom, some schools taught Expeditionary Learning. We can't just think because it has that SOR label that they all do an equally wonderful job at building knowledge, right? So that does still take teacher input. I tell my teachers, okay, you don't feel like it's doing enough? Are you showing those videos about this? Statue of Liberty? Are you maybe scheduling a trip to the Statue of Liberty? So I think Nick is spot on in that sense that, yes, even if something comes in a box, we can't miss this golden opportunity to get it right this time. So I appreciate it. I really do. I think it was refreshing. And one thing about the literacy view is like, we don't want to always agree with the people that we speak to. I think the way we push the needle and really shift the thinking is having these discussions and saying, yeah, I agree with this, but I don't agree with that. And I appreciate, you know, Faith and Nick, you know, talking about different studies and talking about it in a way that's healthy. This yes. is awesome. This is yes. great. This I is the best agree. part of my Sunday night so far, Faith. Yeah. No, I, and I would agree. And I would agree with Judy that I think what really stood out to me, Nick, was how you talked about the importance of teacher responsibility, teacher knowledge, not just turning it over to a program. And that um, I feel very strongly about that. Both of us, Judy and I, um, I did, I was a regional coach for Reading First, and I would like to talk a little bit about Reading First, but that's um, after. But um, in any case, I, I did coach, I am a consultant, and I constantly coach teachers now um, and with embedded training and sharing my knowledge and hopefully imparting what I've learned throughout the years. So I do really understand what you were saying, Nick, about the importance of teacher support, teacher responsibility, and that we can't just ignore the teacher in the equation. Um, do you have anything that you want to add just to that point, Nick, before I go on to something else? Right, I, I can maybe get, uh, oh, can you hear me okay now? Yes, yes. Okay. I think this is the part where I feel a little bit more um, confident because it shifts more into my wheelhouse. Um, if you notice in the piece, there's really kind of like three parts, right? There's the, okay, let's kind of address the the science of reading part of things. And um, obviously, as sort of a, an outsider novice in this, um, I, 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 there's not a whole lot that I can disagree with um, as far as a science of reading goes, right? Like, I feel like that's the do domain of researchers. That's the, the domain of all of these things. So um, the science of reading, I don't have a, a beef with uh, with phonics. I don't have a beef with this. Three queuing just doesn't seem to make a lot of sense uh, to me, you know, as a parent, as a as a whatever. So I'm not going to go to bat for anybody, uh, anybody in that regard. Um, there's the second part of this, uh, though, where I think then we, st we start to get into bigger, um, conversations, which is the, the uppercase. And you'll notice in the piece, I always call it the science of reading and these big scare quotes, right. To distinguish it from what the research actually says, because as we move from what the research says into implementation and into movement building around the science of reading, I think that's where then we start to have, we can actually have a dialogue and a conversation 
about that because then that gets in the realm of policymaking. And of course, for public schools, you know, we all have a say and a stake in what those things look like. And then, you know, through my humanities lens, that's primarily how I see the world anyway. So if we are to um, be able to have functioning uh, small D democratic school system, this is the part that we should care about the most, right? What is the shape of these movements and how are they being implemented in schools with fidelity to the science, right? Where this, where we can defer to, you know, to, to the authority, the domain, right? Of scientific research. And then the times where we're going to have to look elsewhere for those answers, right? Where we're not going to be able to look at what a science of reading says about decoding or phonemic awareness or um, all the other parts of things, right? And we have to ask, right? Well, like, what are the policies that are going to shape what curriculum is purchased? How is that used? How are our teachers trained? And that's obviously, uh, you know, in, in the work that you do there too. But um, in the second half of the piece is really where I, I think I start to get more into my wheelhouse and, and breathe a sigh of relief because um, I think that making that shift from the science into the implementation, into the policy realm, into the shape of schools is a place where I feel more comfortable uh, talking about. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it's interesting because there really are two different things here. There's what you would call the science of reading, which right. is, you know, and, and as you said, scientists don't even use that term. Um, but there's also what we call SOR instruction, right? And I think those are two very different things, even though people talk about them as one, um, just having the research and then looking at the instruction are really two separate pieces. Um, yes. And it, it's something that we really need to look at in a deeper way. You mentioned in your article, Reading First. so. I knew it was coming. I knew it. Well, well, bringing us back to the reading first. Okay, that's all right. Have to go back to reading first (laughs) because um, I think there are a lot of misunderstandings around reading first. Having done the work and having been part of that, so anyone out there who doesn't know about reading first, this was an initiative that started way back when No Child Left Behind was um, you know initiated in the Bush administration. And then there was this government initiative federally funded to get any low performing school districts up to be able to read by grade three. That's all I'm gonna say about it. So um, anyhow, as somebody who was a regional reading coach for Reading First, going into multiple districts, low performing school districts that qualified All I could say is that um, information that people think that reading first did not work. Well, reading first was not always implemented the way it was supposed to. And even though the science was there, people were still holding on to what they did. And then there was, you know, you had mixed methods going on where they were getting uh, one thing, but still doing something that wasn't. They were taking money fr- from the government that supported it, but then they weren't really doing what they were supposed to. So it really wasn't accurate in terms of what ended up coming out of that. And I know that's not your wheelhouse, as you said, but you did write about it. And I, oh, yeah. I think it's important to address because I don't think we want to leave people with. Um, misunderstandings about certain things. And I could speak from personal experience from what I saw with my own eyes. So I had to put that in. Your thoughts, Nick? Yeah. Um, so yeah, the, the context that I cite in here is from a 2008 or 2009 study. I, I don't have it right in front of me, but um, essentially they they looked at, um, I think, the first wave. And my understanding, too, is maybe perhaps the second wave was more successful. Could that could that have been due to tighter regulations and, and uh, a better administration of the funds? Um, that could be the case. Um, but at least that first wave and this, it's like a 211 page report that I had to try and figure things out. What, what I was 
actually shocked to see is that they found on average, the estimated impacts on student reading test scores were not statistically significant. Um, and that really bothered me because the outcomes also stated that, um, you know, teacher um, uh, teacher understanding and knowledge of explicit instruction and phonics training, all the things we would expect um, uh, early literacy teachers to understand increased but yet that didn't translate into an increase into reading comprehension. And so that's the part where I thought there was this interesting disconnect. And I think I added yeah. on to that a little bit, too, in the sense that I think those policy requirements as part of the bigger umbrella, No Child Left Behind, um, had a detrimental impact. Um, I, I mentioned this Navajo school, which comes out of this really interesting study of the impact of No Child Left Behind on you know the indigenous um, uh, reservation schools, because oftentimes uh, I, I my understanding is that the, this money for these programs was attached to um, English only instruction and English only for these materials and, and everything else. And so they lost a lot of the culturally responsive practices that they were using that supported, um, say, the Navajo community, Navajo language, all the other you know parts that go into um, reservation schools, um, Native American schools, et cetera, um, and actually found that post making that shift to English only reading instruction curriculum that their scores dropped by 50%. So there's a dramatic decline of losing. I'm not saying this is the fault of phonics, right? But I'm saying of losing a culturally responsive approach to get right a, pa a reading package or something that's attached to some amount of government money ended up costing a lot more in the long run for these marginalized groups, right? Can I jump in? Sure. Of course. Sorry. I have very strong feelings on all of this. Yes. So one thing I do want to say is I think the way I took it, that your point was basically that implementation is such an important factor. And, you know, maybe reading first, like Faith has more experience with it, although I was teaching at that time, but maybe it failed because of implementation. And I know right after reading First, very soon after came reading recovery training. I was trained by the government as well. I was I trained. What in... I'm saying is, it did not fail the way it seems. No, what, right? It but maybe it actually there were gains, and you know the message seemed to imply that it wasn't um, going anywhere. But the funds were also pulled prematurely from that. Well, as that's as part of implementation all part of the implementation process, yeah. right? That's all part yeah. of it. It all ties together. And that's, you know, that's part of the problem. And then very soon after that, I was trained in reading recovery. It was also a government grant. So it's interesting how we went from a very structured approach to balanced literacy. I did that role for four years. Then the research and data was saying that that wasn't going very far. Now we're going more towards a structured approach, which I believe in, like, to the core of my soul and essence, right? But if we don't think about implementation and what that looks like, we could very well fail again. And I think that, you know, Nick made a point with letters training, right? I'm in letters training. I can't wait to finish it. I know everybody on the internet is like, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God. For me, it's okay because I've had a lot of this knowledge before. It's very, you know, it's long. There's a lot, you know, it's very time consuming, but you know, it's a lot of theory, right? But a lot of the things that really push change is coaching, modeling, seeing you know what, what happens. In, and, yes. and you know what? I missed it in the last episode because I didn't want to talk a lot about it because I still do work in the New York City schools, but I was a coach for Central and I was cut. Mm -hmm. So I, now I had to take a job in-house in a building where I'm very loved and very appreciated and think I'm, you know, really supporting my teachers with helping them learn about the science, but not everybody has a little Judy that's cheering them on okay. and talking about the time. So, just watching a computer that's teaching you about the brain is not what's going to, it's helpful, but it's not the end all be all in making change happen. Yep. So now Nick, Judy brought up a good point and you mentioned this in the article with letters training that, um, you know, you cited that it doesn't really translate to student outcomes, even though the teachers are gaining this overall knowledge. And from my understanding, and from what I think Judy's saying, that it unless it's tied to a curriculum, unless something is tied to materials and training and coaching that's tied to some sort of curriculum, it doesn't translate 
to student outcomes. Your thoughts, Nick? Uh, so, so the study was cited that the thing that shocked me here, right, was the fact that this the sample size was huge, 90 schools, 24,000 students, um, I think 270 teachers. And these teachers got eight days of letters training, which is more PD than I like would get. I'm in. surprised they only got eight days considering oh, okay. I've, been doing the, I've been doing this for two years now and I'm not finished. Okay. Okay. Well, I think, I I don't know. It, it, I don't think the study I read cited like a timeline or if it did, you know, I okay. didn't know but it was it was eight full days of training on this, which if you do eight days times 270 people, it's like 12,000 man hours spent on this letters training, right? And right. yeah, it's exactly this. It, it improved pedagogical knowledge for teachers, but translated to no, or I guess they say um, it did not translate into improvements in student, student reading achievement as measured by standardized tests given by each district. And so again, I think I'm a huge believer, obviously, like you can't have pedagogy and no tools. Um, and you can't have tools and no pedagogy. <laughs> um, and it sounds like like these are mismatches between each of these things. And I worry, here's what my worry, and I get to this in the piece, right, is that we are handing teachers a curriculum package and saying, teach it on the one hand, and they don't have um, background or they don't have support or they're dealing with, you know, putting out other fires and running around like their hair is on fire because it's school um, or right on the other I, I think I would side, I would err on the side of having very well-trained pedagogical teachers who can make choices about the tools that they use um, rather than just give uncertified, untrained, untemporary, whatever teachers, a curriculum package from McGraw-Hill and say, okay, you are doing the science of reading, now go. Because the way I know districts work is they're less concerned about the fidelity to a science and more concerned with fidelity to the million dollar curriculum package that they just bought. So if the teacher says, you know, I don't think it's working the way that I'm doing it, and the teacher doesn't have any skill to um, self-assess, self-evaluate, or make other choices or changes, they're kind of stuck, right? They're, they're spinning their wheels. They're just stuck like they and struggling. Before. And I, yeah, that, you're Nick, that was a right. good point. That was an excellent point. And that's where I think I agree with you. I agree with you that it's just um, this problem that it's just a different program, a different time. And you know what? I do believe in what um, the National Reading Panel did say are the important components of reading. I do believe in the evidence. I live it every day. Um, and you know, have worked and turned around struggling readers for years. Um, but I could tell you this, that I could see the writing on the wall, that if we're just kind of choosing a program to almost school-proof, that's what it almost seems like, school-proofing by choosing a program and not investing in the teachers and supporting them well, then they're going to turn around and say, you know what? This didn't work either. Back to the drawing board, you know? So, and you know what, Faith? It's really true. We see these teachers. I'm in the field every day with these teachers, and they are struggling with tasks and, you know, making sure that it's aligned. And they are still struggling with the gradual release model and what that looks like. Now, I do wish you embraced and talked a little bit more about that, Nick. That's what I was waiting for. There is a lot of research to support that kids benefit from an explicit model and and practice together before they go on to independent tasks. Um, but I, I definitely think that we do need to support our teachers more. And, you know, you mentioned in the article that, you know, the requirements for becoming a teacher are less and less. And it's true. I see shortages in New York City uh, for ENL and bilingual and, okay, you don't need to pass this test. And then Faith mentioned to me, she texted me breaking news the other day that, you know, site that's uh, this uh, College of St. Rose is shutting down that used to train administrators. There is a real educational problem. And um you know, we can't just assume that because a program says SOR, it's going to be perfect. We had Maureen Ruby on our show. She made us aware of that. It's just a tool, right? How long were these program studies? 
studied. You know, even HMH, if you go on the website on the DOE, it's it's there. But people aren't asking questions. People aren't doing that fact finding. So Nick, Nick, so I think that, um, you know, what Judy said about a program is is absolutely true that just because there's this SOR label and you mentioned that in, you know, the article that, um, you know, it's it's way more than that. And, you know, what does that really mean? Judy and I were talking about some of the tasks that are part of these programs that aren't even doable. It's supposed to be these independent types of activities that kids are supposed to do. And we're like, I thought this is supposed to be an evidence-based program. And yet it doesn't even make sense. Like who, who is approving this? Let's um, hear some of your last thoughts, Nick, about this. And also, I do want to go back to how you you are looking at this through a high school lens. And this is all about early reading instruction, young readers, teachers in the field, teaching kids for the first time. And what you're seeing could be also after years and what you're seeing that maybe is or isn't working. But let's talk a little bit about your perspective on this, because I think that's very important, Um, you know, because I'm coming from a background in working in early childhood, as well as elementary school. Um, Privately, I work with people, you know, up to college, but you know, my my training and my school experience was really up to sixth grade. So um, I'd like to hear what you have to say about that. And, and that's, I think, what's really interesting, right, is I, I make the case at the beginning that really what we were seeing for these teachers who were really the ones who were sold the story, you know, they were disempowered as a profession about making the best uh, choices that they could um, for the kids in front of them. Right. They were also told to use these curriculum. They were just as much on the receiving end of publishing giants, school leaders, educational celebrities, you know, all the things um, that come out in the podcast there, too. And and honestly, that was a critique I had of the podcast was I felt like it was not as sympathetic to um, teachers as I think it should have been. But I think my biggest criticism criticism is that there's really no um, sense uh, that. uh, So again, I I say that teacher professionalization and teacher empowerment is the inoculation against being sold the story again in the future. Because if you had teachers who were teaching one way because they were told it was evidence-based and it was the thing that we're doing, well, now if they get handed a curriculum, they say, no, this is the new evidence-based one. <laughs> now teach this way. They still don't have the toolkit, right? They still don't have the way of actually understanding and knowing what is the best way to do. They, they're they just being pulled you know, left and right and um, are just as, uh, um, I don't want to say victim, but right, they're part of that process too. And I think, again, I use the example of um, teachers have been incredibly successful in organizing um, for learning conditions, right? For the schools and the kids in them, you know, and the teaching conditions are learning conditions. Um, and I think it is really troubling then that we've seen the deprofessionalization kind of replaced with, hey, we forget these these teachers. We're just going to give them this science of reading package that anybody can go in and teach. And then we've seen the, um, as you've said, you know, the decline of school systems, um, class sizes increasing, uh, the state of school buildings is in disrepair, disarray. Um, teacher turnover is really high. And I think I even looked at uh, one quote from the teacher quality um, person who said there that like, those disruptions actually lead to achievement gaps too. So, you know, I'm looking at all this big contradictory um, piles of competing narratives and stories. And really, I think I'm a person who lives in the tension, you know, and tries to find the tension. Um, Like I'm a materialist, you know, in the sense that we need to attend to the conditions that we have and make the best with what we can do. But I'm also an idealist. (laughs) So I want to be able to live in the best world that we can possible. And there's tension between those two things, right? How do we get there? So one of the tensions that I found was that I thought it was really difficult to look around the country and say, we care about literacy when we limit opportunities for literacy, maybe outside of an SOR curriculum, right? We remove books from libraries. um, We ban divisive concepts here in the state of Iowa, right? There are certain things that you can't talk about with kids in schools, books that they cannot read. Um, I know I included a piece from Jose Luis Vilson, who's a New York City educator, um, 
who I'm a huge fan of, you know, talking about how they cut the library hours <laughs> due to budget cuts. Um, so again, we're investing in an SOR curriculum and cutting the opportunities to build literacy outside of those things. Yes. Um, so that was Nick, I think New York City, I heard, I read in the paper that yeah. they plan for next year to cut the budget by 500 million. Like that's a lot of money. Right. That is definitely I don't see that classrooms have everything that they need now. I could only imagine what it's going to look like with five hundred million dollars less. That's terrifying. Right. right. And and yeah. again, I think if we're if we're trying to balance tools and pedagogy or thinking about it in, through the lens of literacy, then um, cutting all those one things and then expecting the McGraw-Hill curriculum to solve it all or whatever, the EL curriculum or, you know, to solve all the problems, I think is setting setting it up for, for frustration. I think it's setting up for failure. And I hope not, but like it risks, doesn't it, a discrediting of this thing where you say, okay, we've invested all of our, uh, we put all of our eggs in this uh, a science of reading curriculum basket, and now we're seeing the consequences of it. Well, no, it was these other things, actually. I think that actually risks discrediting the ideas at the heart of, right, what makes a science of reading work because we've disinvested so much. And I think, frankly, I think we see a little yeah. bit of that with the embrace of these other groups, too. Um, I mentioned Moms for Liberty. Um, I mentioned Ryan Walters in Oklahoma. I mentioned all these other groups who are just lining up to use SOR for their own little kind of thing. And well, I know I'm that that's not what the science is. I knew I'm, you were going to I'm going to stop you there because <laughs> okay. a lot wait, of Wait, wait, Faith, do you need this? Well, okay. Oh, I'm okay. getting, this is the first one. I will say, we're an hour what? in and I'm just getting it now for the first time. What, what is, what is. Okay. Chelsea's for cheers. Okay. So yeah. here's what I want to say. Yeah. I don't want to get into politics at no. all. But I could tell you that a lot of those moms have been right. burned, burned badly. And Correct. their kids were not getting phonics. They were getting three cueing. Correct. Getting, um, you know, instruction that led these kids on a bird walk. Correct. And so when you say that they were using the SOR for to for other issues. No, these are moms. Some of them I know that really spent thousands, thousands and thousands of, of yep. dollars paying for evaluations. Neuropsychology. Yeah, and then schools would ignore and, the neuropsych reports and, and still not give them evidence. Ignored based. what they yep. were saying. Their Correct. kids were just slipping yep. and slipping by. That's and, right. Um, I have to say yep. that as far as the Emily Hanford podcast, um, in all fairness, in, you know, because we didn't really talk about her podcast. Yes, she focused on phonics because that was the missing piece for so long. So and and, you know, it was not given the attention that it should have. And right. it was being mixed in with a lot of other types of teaching like leveled books and picture walks and queuing. And so I just want to say that there's a reason that she focused on that. And I don't think that was the only thing. And I could tell you from my own book, Failing Students of Failing Schools, having lived this for 37 years, I saw the damage that this has done. And I also have seen, and I could share many parents um, you know, their their um, testimonials of how what I did with them changed their children's lives. So, you know, I want to be very, very. And that's clear. the same with me. What What do you think? A lot of my feelings are not just feelings. It's right. Because I'm, this is kids that are suffering. Right. Families that are suffering. Right. And, you know, this is coming from somebody who was trained in reading recovery. So I really have a lot of children that I've worked with that the system failed. And I have a lot of kids that I'm working with privately that have foundations that have Hegarty, but still have Lucy. And I have little six and seven year olds telling me, Miss Judy, I'm really confused. My teacher's telling me not to do, not to sound out words, to only look at pictures. And it's still happening right now after so much research has come out. And that, it, it, but that does go back to Nick's point that 
if teachers had a better handle on all of this, then all that confusion wouldn't really happen in the first place. All right, so I'm going to use my cheers button. (laughs) Well, not yet, not yet. But let's, I want to see what Nick has to say first before we cheers. (laughs) Go ahead. I don't hear you. Okay, hold on. Yeah. Is that working now? <laughs> yes, okay. Yes. I hit my mute button on accident. Um, yes. Yeah. So, so I, I, I'm, I'm with you here. I, I mean, I, I, I understand the plight of uh, people who are burned by the system, and I am not going to defend the system against, uh, yeah. you know, people who were treated poorly by it. My son, um, he is on an IEP um, for ADHD, and I pretty much feel like undiagnosed autism along the way too. And um, we've had to very much work with the school district to um, get them to take ADHD seriously as a disability. Um, it's right. not just it's not just um, that uh, he's making choices to make the teacher mad. Uh, right. Um, it, you know, and that kind of thing. So, so I, I definitely feel that I, I will say, and instead of, but, or however, right, let's, let's make this generative conversation instead of a, a, instead of a debate. And I think that the, the, their bigger movement, uh, I think at least as far as you see attack, um, LGBTQ identities that have led to the passages of these things is an attack on literacy writ large, right? Like if we look outside the context of, um, reading and writing in the early grades, you know, Faith, you asked me to speak a little bit to my own experience for high yes. school um, students, yes. right? Um, more often than not, uh, you know, the students that I saw struggle, um, I mean, looking back, uh, yeah, I think you could probably say some of those were uh, early reading struggles in, in the early grades. I mean, I can't be the oracle to, to go say those things. But uh, in the work that I do in my nonprofit now, what we really see with middle school kids that the that the data supports, that the survey data supports is, um, is the engagement cliff, right? So kids fall off the engagement cliff in middle school and never recover. Um, they kind of move listless from one thing to the next. And really, that is what I saw um, uh, at, in, in my experience with with older kids was not necessarily there was a lack of content or a lack of um, ability in reading, but there was a lack of uh, any purpose or reason for why they should do that. Um, and so, you know, I, I kind of viewed my work as the way to get kids to connect to the world outside of school. And one of the big reasons why I left, uh, I walked out of classroom teaching uh, was after, um, you know, I had taught my kids about in my AP European history class, we were learning about the history of nationalism, right, in in Europe in the 1800s. And, uh, you know, we made connections to the history of white nationalism and where it's alive in the world today. And um, I got told by my principal in that conversation that, Nick, current events don't belong in history class. Um, and after about a year uh, and a half after going back and forth with them and kind of escalating um, conflicts that led to um, uh, unpaid suspensions for myself and everything else, I um, finally resigned in 2022. So um, the the what you, what you say with uh, with Moms for Liberty and this uh, you know reactionary backlash to uh, COVID culture culture wars and things, I think does have broader impacts uh, to kids uh, in their classroom learning beyond those early literacy grades, right? Uh, 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 I, I think I'm a good teacher. I'm not teaching kids anymore in part because of uh, that culture war. Um, and I think the more that it strips kids of opportunities um, to learn about other perspectives and opinions, then uh, then I, I, I can ultimately view that movement as uh, harmful in the long run, right? If you, I'm not talking you, about the movement. I want to be very clear. Like I yeah. said, the literacy view is not about politics. I, I just want to be very clear. I am I am just picking out that moms um, with uh, children who have any type of learning disability or dyslexia, you know, classified with dyslexia or ADHD, that they've been burned along the way. And partly because of this whole area that Emily Hanford spotlighted, you know, that it was, in fact, a missing component that these kids were not learning. And so, what was that? Also, Faith. You're fading out. What was that? You hear me? I just want to say something too. I don't want people to walk away with a misconception that structured literacy classrooms aren't digging deep into issues also. They're, they're, they're really working on building knowledge and talking about world cultures and stuff like that. So I don't want people to think that, you know, only balanced literacy talked about 
you know, different things that went on a deeper level. Yeah, but I think what Nick said is very sad that he could not teach about current events. Um, and we see the problem with that today, right? That, that's another episode. You know, that's, that's another episode, right? I, but, well, I think, yes. can I, sorry, Faith, I think, I so I think here is where the conversation shifts, doesn't it? From here's what a science of reading can right. tell us is the best right. way to acquire early literacy skills. And then where do we make the handoff into, okay, now we have to talk about policy because Budget cuts are closing the library. Um, we have fi a 5,000 teacher shortage throughout the state, and we're hiring um, uncertified substitutes to temporarily fill those gaps. And, right, look at the political attacks on, that are preventing what our social studies teachers can teach as far as content and yeah, et cetera. Et cetera. Those aren't politics. questions we can answer with a science of reading, right? So so what I what the point I'm making the piece is, what do we use to answer those questions? What is the toolkit that we have to help us answer them? Or is it just going to be filled by these groups who are going to fill it with their own ideas and ideas? It's one thing, Faith, I totally understand is not want to talk about politics, but any time that we're talking about policy implementation, we are, in a sense, we don't have to be talking about partisanship. We are talking about the, the exercise of power, right? And these groups are exercising power in a lot of these different ways. And I think we need to be hip to the reality of that, okay, right? We so need to be cued in. Okay, but here's how I... All right, I'm going to take okay. some seltzer while you guys keep going at it. <laughs> well... I, Grab another one. But I'm more concerned... Actually, about, Nick, let me just I'm, tell you. I wait a minute. I'm, I'm more concerned with special interest groups that protect publishing companies. And that's more of a problem for me, which is all about the money. Correct. And, correct. I'm with and, Faith. And, you know, and they kind of move us in the direction, like Heinemann, into believing that, you know, they had all the answers and that basically these school districts were spending bang, you know, on all Correct. So, But Faith, you know that Heinemann is part of the some of the programs out there. You know that, right? Yes. Yeah. So HMH, I think, and Heinemann are kind of together. You know, that's, you know, so there's so much that we don't see and so much that's not really being talked about that, yes, you could focus on a mom group, but from my perspective, those moms, you know, I don't, in my mind, any mom, who has been fighting this fight. or dad or dad. or dad, mom or dad or guardian, whatever has been fighting this fight for so long. I have the utmost respect for and as I, and, I do and, as well. and I sympathize with them. What I don't sympathize with are, you know, these special interest groups. I don't, and I don't sympathize with professors who have tenure who know better and continue to peddle this garbage. And that really bothers me as well, Nick. I don't know how you feel about that. But, you know, to me, that's a sin. That's a sin that they're training teachers and they're responsible for moving this forward. And that's why this hasn't gone away. Well, this, this is what I say in the piece, right? I say, meet the old boss, uh, meet the new boss, yes. same as the old boss, right? I like, because... I know, I love when you said that, yes. Yeah, well, that's what it reminded Wait, me I'm of. Wait, I'm going to do cheers. Just... That's a cheers. Okay. okay. <laughs> Maybe that cancels out my BS button from earlier. But, but well, like, that's, that's again, how I fe felt about teachers in this. They're being, the teachers are the ones that are being sold the story from the curriculum companies and 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 stuff uh and i think honestly these companies not just uh, mcgraw hill or heinemann but groups like the college board too play a really outsized role in influencing um what education across this country you know looks like um and again <laughs> dang it i don't want to i don't want to get uh, uh political with you here faith yeah um, please don't like, do it 
Oh, and for okay. Me, <laughs> okay. All right. I was gonna, I was going to talk about the curriculum. Well, so so again, this is this is I think the a difference in lenses, right? So when when I think of it, I don't think of it in terms of of partisanship. I'm thinking of it in terms of you know p- policy and power and who has it and kind of the flows of these things. And, and again, that's a theme in my piece too, isn't it? It's questions of language are questions of power. That's um you know something that Noam Chomsky said. So I think any time that we're talking about policy and implementation, we have to be talking about power and politics. It's not partisanship. Um, but there's it's the also pa- Nick, there's also power in curriculum. And I know you mentioned um, social justice. And I've been in schools where there were teachers writing a curriculum and it was um, social justice curriculums. And the teachers were writing it and there were many great lessons. But we had data that the kids couldn't read. So was that fully, you know, helping social justice policy? Uh, well, I, I mean, I can't answer. I can't answer for this, you know, this, that or the other thing. But I think I will speak. I'll bring it back to the culturally responsive practices part. Right. Um, another example I bring in up in the piece is Houston ISD. Um, and, you know, if you've been following the the the, the news there, basically, right, the governor uh, appointed uh, the TEA person, Texas Education Agency. They appointed a new superintendent at Houston ISD, Mike Miles, gone in and made a whole slew of changes. Right. And one of those changes is implementing the science of curriculum, uh, science of reading curriculum, again, in English only. And Houston is a district that is, you know, overwhelmingly Hispanic, Latino. Um, I think something about 42, 46 percent in there are Spanish speaking. And I had already talked to a parent in Houston um, for our podcast who said there there already are concerns about how the rollout and changes are going, um, being communicated in Spanish for those families. And now there's double concerns, right, that their kids are not going to be getting the same kind of uh, 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 multilingual instruction and support that That's they did before. Topic. We're definitely going to address on the literacy view. Um, yes. I, I see a lot of that in schools, and I could talk about a, a lot about yeah. that on another episode. But yeah, so there think, are in that realm. I just think there's a distinction between like social justice being like, we're just, uh, I mean, I don't even know. It's a caricature of what social justice is. And then really fitting it into more responsive frameworks, culturally responsive frameworks um, in terms of um, meeting kids where they're at with cultural capital, uh, meeting kids without in terms of uh, language, community supports, and all those other things that we know, right, are going to work in those and not just, and I don't I know. I agree um, with you, Nick. It is, yeah. it is a bigger conversation. It is a bigger conversation than just um, science of reading. Yeah, sorry. Um, It is. Um, I think just when people walk away, and hopefully they will read your article, um, you know, from what I got out of it in terms of where I did agree with you um, is this importance in, in terms of getting teachers up to speed so that these things just don't keep happening, where history doesn't keep repeating itself, where they need to kind of know what's going on rather than having the publishers tell them, you know, here it is, you know, drop it in their laps, now just teach this and not really think of the bigger picture in this. So I'd like to wrap up if there's anything that I didn't mention, um, Nick, please, you know, just say it now and then we'll wrap up. Your piece. Yeah, right. Well, I think, um, again, I'll encourage people to to read the piece, but I'll, I'll end, too, just by referencing um, someone whose work that I found particularly informative on this, and that was Marin Ackerman. And that, was, that was not someone that I was familiar with before um, encountering this work, but I found her words kind of uh, a refreshing um, sort of antidote to, you know, a lot of the the heat that gets generated as a result of this conversation, especially as we had just kind of experienced, like, how do we fit, you know, a socially just science of reading into this? Aren't these kind of at loggerheads? Um, and they wrote this wonderful piece, um, her and another co-author, dang it, let me pull it up here, um, Lorian um, Schultz, it's towards a robust and socially just science of reading, which I really think meshes with a lot of what we had just said here. Um, as far as teachers having access to um, literacy curricula that supports varied acts, uh, varied aspects of textual dexterity, attends to students' literate dispositions, cultivates their development as literate individuals, honors their differences. Um, it teaches for decoding, 
um, supports comprehension, different kinds of text use, critical thinking about text. Um, and they say that reimagining a science of reading based on these principles, um, attending closely to linguistic, cultural, and individual variation, et cetera, has the potential to make it, the science of reading, both a more robust and more socially just, particularly for kids from non-dominant cultures. And so I just, I just think, I hope with my piece, we can generate more um, light than heat um, and uh, and really just kind of find a way to um, dial down, I guess, these these reading wars and understand that none of this is a call against reading. Um, it's a call for more literacy overall. Um, and I'm excited to bring that conversation here. And I just thank you for having me on. Yeah. Thank you. And thank you so much for joining us, Nick. You know, I think um, like Judy said before, we try, we really try very hard to bring people on with different perspectives because, you know, otherwise we're living in an echo chamber. And um, I, I thank you for the conversation, for spending your Sunday evening with us. Judy, I'm going to turn it over to you. So tell everyone how they can get in touch with us. So. Just remember, after watching this episode, we have a unique opportunity to make a difference in the lives of so many kids. So keep on pushing those questions, ask questions. And here's where you could find us. You could find us on Facebook, The Literacy View, Real Teachers Letting Loose. Follow us on Instagram, The Literacy View. Follow Faith on Instagram at High Five Literacy. Follow me at on Instagram at Boxner Judy. Follow us on YouTube. Please subscribe to our YouTube channel so you could be the first to see when something comes out. Also, we're on Spotify, Apple Podcasts. We want to see more reviews. We want to hear from you more. Please subscribe, subscribe, subscribe. Yes. And share your thoughts. And and share the podcast, please. Right. We appreciate and, it. Share it with your friend. So, okay, let's yeah. wrap up. And good night, Nick. Thank you again. First thing.